Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we're going back a generation prior to Murdoch to introduce the philosopher Dorothy Emmett to listeners and to consider her links and later friendship with Murdoch and indeed to consider a broader picture of female philosophy um, in Oxford um, in the early 20th century. And joining me to discuss Emmett and Emmett's work is Larry Blum from the University of Massachusetts. Hello, Larry. Hi, glad to be here. It's great to have you back on. Thank you. Uh, Larry is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Distinguished Professor of Liberal Arts and Education. And he's written a wealth of material covering a very broad scope in the field, including the books High Schools, Race and America's Future, What Students Can Teach Us About Morality, Diversity and Community. Um, he's, um, I'm Not a Racist, But the Moral Quandary of Race moral perception and particularity friendship altruism and morality and indeed one of his earlier books a truer liberty simone vale and marxism uh for other listeners uh, who know the uh, know the podcast well he's also the author of the stanford encyclopedia a philosophy entry on murdoch that he discussed on the podcast last year so if you don't know that episode um probably one worth listening to after you've listened to this one larry thanks so much for coming back on um perhaps i can start by asking you how you came to be interested in emmett um, certainly thinking back to um, your earliest connections, really, in Oxford in the late 1960s. Yes, well, I am a moral, social and political philosopher. And when I was a postgraduate student, I got a fellowship to spend a year in Oxford. And I think that I remember being in Blackwell's and seeing Emmett's book, Rules, Roles and Relations, on the shelf, picking it up and think, oh, this seems interesting. And I read it and it was interesting, but no one ever referred to it in any of the places that I was going intellectually. So oh, yeah. it just kind of sat there. And then I, you know, be, for a while I was a straight moral philosopher and I was working in the kind of uh, anti-Kantian tradition of looking at the role of um, kind of um, the emotional basis of morality in sympathy, compassion, and concern, and the absence of attention to those issues in uh, Kant's rationalist approach. Mm -hmm. And I, and Murdoch was very much part of my uh, intellectual formation in that particular period. And I wrote several articles about her in the in the nineteen eighties, and then I just very um, slowly kind of drifted into this race and uh, social and political philosophy area. I never lost touch entirely with moral philosophy, but it became a kind of secondary interest. And then in um, in the 2000s, when Justin Brokes was pulling together the first all philosopher collection on Murdoch, which you've had a podcast about. Indeed, very recently. Right. So I have I have an article in there. And then in 2018, at the time of the kind of Murdoch revival because of the centenary, and I, I was invited to speak about Murdoch at that uh, Oxford conference. And, and so you know, that conference just led to a whole shift in my own uh, kind of intellectual life. And I got completely drawn up in the in the Murdoch revival. And then I spoke at, at the, the following year at Oxford also. And then as, as you mentioned, Miles, I wrote the Stanford Encyclopedia entry mm -hmm. on her. And then because the attention to the 
to the quartet group, Murdoch, Anscombe, Foot and Midgley, with the two books, one by Ben Lipscomb and one by Claire McCool and Rachel Wiseman, had come out. I got very caught up in this kind of larger issue of these four wonderful moral philosophers. So I'm now, I see myself as very much part of that quartet project and the kind of wider idea of, of looking at British women philosophers and their kind of role in, in 20th century British philosophy. And so would it be fair to say then that um, you're really at the beginning of thinking about Emma as a scholar and and and, and her kind of philosoph philosophical outlook in, in general terms? Yeah, so, so, you know, Emmett, of course, is not the right age to be part of the quartet. Sure. So she can't be part of the quartet, but she is a moral philosopher and she she shares various aspects of her thought are similar to those of the quartet in pushing back against a kind of uh, overly positivistic way of of doing philosophy and especially about thinking about ethics. So I think that she kind of belongs in the same intellectual terrain as the other four. And I think of Mary Warnock, who's a, a few years younger than the quartet as another, so I think of it as like quartet plus and sure. the plus is yeah. Emmett and Warnock. So it's like six of them for me, <laughs> it's six of them. And I did get very interested in, in, uh, in Emmett, I'm I'm in no way an Emmett scholar. I'm, there's still a lot of her work that I haven't I haven't read yet, but I do find her fascinating. So I'm in the kind of initial stages of getting into that, and that's what I will talk about today. Sure, and I, I think it's it, it's wonderful that um, you know you're, you're part of the the Emmett revival. I don't if there is anybody else listening to this podcast who is interested in Emmett and and the Emmett revival as it's just kind of taking off. I'm sure Larry would be, love, love to be in touch with you. And also, you know, figures like Susan Stebbing, who has all, have also kind of in the last uh, 18 months or two years or so been um, gone, gone through a particular revival and republication. So I think, um, you know, female philosophy at Oxford in the early to mid 20th centuries really, really is going through a, a particular revival at the moment. Larry, could you say a little bit about um, Emmett's life? I mean, for most people listening, I imagine she will be a figure who people might know by name only. She might, they might have read the quartet, the two quartet books, and and you know heard of her, heard her name. And for some people, won't won't know her at all. Could you give a little bit of an overview of her life and work, and perhaps where it intersects with the quartet, and particularly with Murdoch? Yes. Yeah, so, I, I will give an overview of her life. She was born in 1904, and she died in 2000. She so she had an extremely long life. Mm. So this take me a while to <laughs> to touch the the high points there. She her father was um, a a scholar. She calls him a scholar country parson. They right. lived 15 miles from uh, from Oxford. She didn't go to school until she was 14. And then she went to a school for the daughter of clergy. She went to Oxford. No. Oh, um, oh, so she she says that the religious interest that she got from her father was something, as she put it, I never quite lost, she says. Um, and her her sense of philosophy is very kind of tied in with religion, which is, you know, very contrary to the sort of Oxford orthodoxy. Mm, so in 1923, she goes to Oxford to Lady Margaret Hall, 
and there is no philosophy program at the women's colleges. So she somehow gets hooked up with a tutor at Balliol, Charles Morris, and then one year he goes on leave and she works with A.D. Lindsay, who's a very important figure for her. Um, she says something interesting about him. He's he's someone who's he was somewhat known as a scholar in that period. Probably his most famous book is called The Modern Democratic State, which is a kind of political philosophy. But he also wrote in in moral philosophy. I'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, okay. She so it's very interesting when. Emmett is, she, she spends a long time talking about Lindsay's th thought, and it's a little bit, you know, a little bit tangential to our, our interest today. But I just want to read that she's talking about him, and she says the following. The good is not that which satisfies whatever desires we happen to have, but that which we come to appreciate in a way which brings together desire, will, and reason. I think Lindsay would have applauded Miss Iris Murdoch's latter-day Platonism in her Leslie Stephen lecture, The Sovereignty of Good Over Other Concepts. Now, of course, that's one of the three essays that mm -hmm. composes The Sovereignty of Good. But it was just fascinating. It like came out of nowhere. She's like talking about Lindsay and then it, it kind of shows that Murdoch is a very important reference point for her, kind of intellectually. So I was struck by that. Okay, so in 1926, there was a general strike in, uh, in Britain, mm. and it was on behalf of, of the miners whose conditions were kind of uh, worsening there were 1.2 coal miners who were on strike. And then there was a general strike to support the coal miners. And she got involved in that. And she she says she heard a speech by R.H. Tawney, who's a famous British um, uh, historian who wrote a famous book called Equality. That came out in 1931. So that's subsequent to this. But she says of him, that speech gave me the nearest thing I had to a conversion experience, leading me to be seriously concerned about political matters. He was talking about the strike. So she goes down there to be part of the strike. And it turns out that the mine owners often recruited college students basically to be strike breakers. And they, they did actually eventually defeat this strike. But she says... Um, I didn't want to be a strike breaker. So she goes down there to support a strike. And then, you know, presumably the implication is most of her fellow students are actually on the other side. And it, it was a, a sign of a kind of adventurous spirit that you see in the rest of uh, Emmett's life, I would say. But it was really remarkable. She's, you know, at that point, she's only, uh, she's, 22 years old mm. and then it led and so she worked in the uh, worker wea worker education association summer school that was held at Balliol. so for several summers subsequent to that 1923 she worked in that 
program. It's not clear how many years. But then after she graduated, she she went to a settlement in an area called the Rhonda Valley, which was a mining district in Wales. And she did educational and self-help work. And then she taught WEA classes to the miners. And her classes were on Plato. But a lot of the miners had been to a kind of Marxist-oriented school also, and then came to her classes as well. So she had these very lively, or she says, vigorous arguments in class with these Marxist students. And she came to sort of, you know, know something and understand something of, of Marxism. But she taught them about Plato. You know, there's still, that's a remarkable thing for this woman, this young woman in her early 20s teaching these these minors. She doesn't make a thing of it. But uh, anyway, I was I was very struck. So then later in the 20s, she gets interested in Alfred North Whitehead, an important British philosopher who's probably best known for his work with Bertrand Russell in a, a book called Principia Mathematica, which was about the kind of logical foundations of mathematics. But Whitehead went on to, to go in a very kind of metaphysical direction. And that's what she was interested in. And she applied for a fellowship to study with him because at that time he was teaching at Radcliffe College, which is a women's college attached to Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where I live. And um, she came over for a year to study with him. And she was quite involved with him. She, his lectures at Radcliffe were to only eight students. So she, Whereas at Harvard, there were like 70 students. So she was saying, even though they were seen as kind of second class citizens, the Radcliffe, <laughs> you know, the women's college. Yeah. She said it was actually better because she she really got to know him. And she when she got back to um, she got back to England, she had some appointment in Oxford and she wrote a book about um, about Whitehead. So she was one of the first interpreters of Whitehead, and she tried to make him, you know, his his metaphysical work was quite complicated, and I don't actually know anything about it, but it was very important to her intellectual formation. Then she taught at Newcastle for a while, and in 1938, she got a job at the University of Manchester, and that was her main uh you know, home. She basically built the Manchester philosophy department, essentially. Mm. She doesn't quite put it that way in her book, but she did do that. Um, in the mid-40s, or kind of during the war, basically, she worked on a book on metaphysical thinking that was responding to the logical positivist challenge. So, you know, that challenge, as I'm, I'm sure many of you all know, started especially from in, in 1936 with the publication of A.J. Ayer's Language, Truth, and Logic. And it kind of took the Oxford by storm. And she was pushing, she was part of a group. Um, I mean, some of them were just like older people who were being attacked by Ayer, and so they were pushing back. But she felt that the attack on metaphysics, the idea that metaphysics was this completely meaningless enterprise because it couldn't be verified by sense experience. She thought there was something wrong with that. And in 1945, 
the book that she's working on is is published. It's called The Nature of Metaphysical Thinking. And this is the first point of contact with with uh, <laughs> with Murdoch, because we know that Murdoch had that book on her shelf when she lived in in London. And presumably she she read that book. And I'll talk about it a little bit more later. Then in the 50s in Manchester, she gets involved with a an anthropology seminar. There was a, an important anthropologist there named Max Gluckman, who brought together a largely anthropology group. And she, but she became part of that group. And then in 58, she wrote a book that's essentially a philosophy of anthropology book. It just is completely something that the metaphysics is just like a whole different thing. She's like at a completely different uh, intellectual universe there. And um, Fun Function, Purpose and Powers is the name of that book. And I want to read you, it was reissued in 1972 when there's a foreword by Victor Turner, who's a very prominent British uh, anthropologist of that generation. My impression is that he's, you know, one of the premier uh, British anthropologists. I don't really know enough about anthropology, but he says something about Emmett that I think is very insightful. He says, most of all, I remember the luminous uncommon sense of Dorothy Emmett, our friendly neighborhood philosopher. Philosophers often remain aloof from the untidy dealings of men with men in the stream of social life. So forgiving the sexism of the lingo within British academia of that time, but it's the quote, he said he's talking just about men. But Professor Emmett, deeply concerned with issues of comparative ethics, regarded the data dredged from many varieties of the human experience in often unusual settings by anthropologists as a challenge for philosophy rather than a deviation. So this, this idea of her, her luminous uncommon sense, I think actually captures something really significant about the way that she writes. She has an extremely kind of accessible, unpretentious style. She never says she's introducing some kind of big earth shattering idea. She's just very um, kind of down to earth. And the, the idea of our friendly neighborhood philosopher, I kind of love that because mm. here she is, they're just at Manchester. And so she she just kind of wanders into this anthropology group with it, that she then becomes a part of. And then she writes a whole book about it. And he's, he he goes on to say, its first in its first appearance, function, purpose, and powers was well ahead of its time. Its time has now come. And I think that there, there's a critique of functionalism, which was a very important anthropological idea, which I don't know enough about to really even talk about. But I think that's what Turner is referring to. It's seldom that a style as lucid and unpretentious as Dorothy Emmett's has been critically applied to a terminology as turbid and grandiose as sociologies in the high 50s with such devastating effect. Dorothy Emmett is urging that we study man alive, both braced by and bracing against the institutions that penetrate and surround him. So note that he actually mentioned sociology, not only anthropology here, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, 
her interest in people as part of a, of a, of a world of institutions, that people function through institutions, and that social sciences sometimes study the institutions, but you lose a sense of the person who's in those institutions. And he's saying that she's someone who bridges that. And she's very interested in institutional life and the institutional dimension of moral of moral life. It so sounds, I was gonna I was gonna say that it, it sounds as if she wrote an awful lot across a lot a very wide genre of of, of subjects. I mean how, how many books did she did she publish it in total? Ten. Ten, my goodness, and Ten. and and they and very very wide ranging as, as you've made out. Um, yes, yeah. So I was gonna, you know, I'm gonna cover not all of. I'm gonna mention all of them, but cover okay. a few of them. Um, I think I I realized that I didn't particularly say something about her memoir, which I wanted to. Her memoir, which was written just uh, in the late 90s, it's called Philosophers and Friends, Reminiscences of 70 Years in Philosophy. And it is, uh, the idea of writing a memoir, sort of when you think about it, Mary Midgley wrote a memoir and Mary Warnock wrote a memoir. Mm. So you've got these three women philosophers of slightly different, well, somewhat different generations. And they all wrote these memoirs. I'm not sure quite what to make of that, but I hope somebody will pay some, some attention to that. And, you know, because Emmett was alive for so long and she, you know, came up in this pre-logical positivist era where she was still studying with, um, you know, the tail end of, of British idealism, which is just, you know, couldn't be more different from logical positivism. But then she moves into these other areas, um, these other fields like anthropology. And now the next thing she does in 1960, she decides to go to Columbia University in, in the U.S. She gets a fellowship to work with Robert Merton, who is the premier sociologist, American sociologist of his generation. I don't know how she got onto that. It must have been something that came out of the anthropology thing. But anyway, she works with him. She he's he develops the idea of role theory, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Okay. And he tells her that she has to write a book about role theory and sociology. So she goes home and she writes this other book called Rules, Roles, and Relations. And that's the book that I, you know, found as a grad student. It was published in 66, so I found it in 68 or 69. And, you know, so she's like weighing in on yet another social science. She's got anthropology, now she's got this sociology book. The sociology one is less a philosophy of sociology than the previous one was a philosophy of anthropology. It was more about the relation between ethics and sociology. And it's, you know, it's quite quite fascinating and I'll, I'll get to that. So then the next kind of remarkable thing that happens to her is that in 1962, she takes early retirement and she retires to Cambridge where she has these friends who are called the Epiphany Philosophers. The Epiphany Philosophers have started to get some reattention, but they were a group 
the, the most important members of which were a couple, Richard Braithwaite, a philosopher, and Margaret Masterman, who's a kind of interdisciplinary figure, sort of a linguist, but somewhat of a philosopher. And uh, they're both brilliant intellects, and they invite Emmett to come live with them in Cambridge. And they have a kind of religious community. The Epiphany Philosophers is both an intellectual group, but it's also like a, a religious, uh, a group who's trying to somehow live out religious values while also examining uh, religious values from a philosophical point of view. And they put out a journal called Theoria to Theory, which ran for 15 years. And Emmett was the editor of this journal. And it's a journal that deals with religion, science, and philosophy. And I just want to read you from the first, um, I think it's from their first issue. And I think she must have, I won't read the whole thing, but she says, to, to our monastic friends, we say, renew your vision, and when you have renewed it, display it. To our humanist friends, we say, and I'm not completely sure I know what that category means to her. To our humanist friends, we say, this journal is serious, and you know as well as we do that the questions it deals with are serious and cannot be laughed off. If the besetting fault of the clerical mind is superficiality, the besetting fault of the scientist is to assume that what he cannot deal with does not exist. So there's a, crit a criticism there of scientism, and it's a similar criticism that you see in the quartet. It's coming from a slightly different area, but but all of them agree that the, somehow the pretensions of science to be the uh, you know the form of of knowledge you know all knowledge is comes through the sciences. Mm. All, all of them are pushing back against that from different angles. To the okay, so back to to Emmett's thing. To the philosophers, we say stop limiting philosophy and defining it in such a way as to exclude a large number of important inquiries. Stop trying to be fashionable. Be curious. Everything else would follow if you would have some curiosity. So again, she's she's also criticizing, a, you know, a narrowness. Of, of a kind of professionalizing of philosophy that went along with the kind of narrow focus of it, which many people have have criticized, of which the two quartet books do as well. Mm, and sure. she ends, she ends with to those who would not classify themselves with any of these, but who still hope that there may be something in Christianity or indeed in any other religion, we would simply say things aren't as hopeless as you might think. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in any of the philosophies currently in use. Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought, where is that line? Don't let the bastards grind you down. So, so it, you know, it's this very feisty intellectual project that she's doing at this, you know, late stage in her life after she's kind of finished her uh, university teaching. And um, okay, it, it seems to me that she's. Did you? It seems to me that she's working in in so many different areas and 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 moving into 
this kind of melding, as you say, of, of, of philosophy and religion. Did it really take off or was it very much um, a kind of a, a, a coterie of, of, of thinkers within Cambridge or did it have did it sort of spread its net wide and have an influence elsewhere, do you think? So I don't I don't know very much about them. I know that they um, they definitely had people outside Cambridge. So it, there was a residential part in Cambridge, but there seemed to be a wider community. And she says at one point that four times a year they would gather at some place and do, you know, some sort of religious ceremonies and presumably right. intellectual. Rowan Williams was a member of this group. He's, you know, probably the most famous mm. who kind of passed through passed through that. You know, Rowan Williams, um, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? He was, yes, yeah. for a number of years. And, and then he he has a piece in the Murdochian mind as well. Yes. I'm quite sure. Um, another kind of fascinating connection to that group is there's an American philosopher whose name is Anthony Appia, He's actually, Appiah is, uh, he's, he has a British mother and a Ghanaian father. And he went to Cambridge. You know, he, he grew up, he went, he, he grew up in Ghana, but he, he then came to England for his uh, education. And I found this article that he wrote, it was in the New York Times in 2008, where he said that that the epiphany philosophers were like his intellectual mentors. I mean, Appiah, if your if your uh, audience doesn't know this, he's probably the most famous public philosopher in in the U.S. He has a weekly column called the Ethicist in the New York Times, where he answers you know people write in with ethical mm -hmm. problems, he addresses them. But he's also written many books. He's certainly the most prominent black philosopher. He was the first black head of the American Philosophical Association. He's a very well-known figure. And actually, he is sort of the reason I got back into Emmett, which I didn't mention. I was at a, at a talk that he gave, and he just mentioned on the fly that he knew Emmett. And I went up to him after the talk and you know, I just asked him for a little bit more detail, which there wasn't much time for, but she had obviously taught him in some way. But now we also know she was part of this community that he was part of. And I just discovered this like last week. So I'm oh, right. Okay. There's a, Very if there's a of some of someone like maybe even me trying to talk to Appia, I, I do know him because the world of people who do philosophy and race you know, going back 30 years, there were a very small number of us. And so we all knew each other. And I'd love to talk to him about what it was like being in this epiphany philosopher philosophy group, which he regards, he, he uh, refers to as a commune. Um, anyway, that's just off to the side there. Okay, so then I'm, I'm, I'm almost um, at, at the end of my thing. I just want to mention, yes, she wrote, she wrote um, 10 books and uh, I've, I've mentioned four of them now. So th three others that I'll mention are The Moral Prism from 1979, which is a, you know, kind of a straight moral philosophy book. And it engages with Murdoch. And I think she must be one of the first scholars, if you think about it this way, to have a kind of scholarly response to Murdoch. She doesn't go into a lot of detail, but she's mentioned and then there's a 1994 book when she's 90 called The Role of the Unrealizable. 
And that book is actually dedicated to Murdoch. Really? Yeah, it's dedicated to Murdoch. Isn't that fascinating? Because they and, they they became much closer as as as, um, as Dorothy got older, didn't they? They they, they formed a friendship. Yes, they did, and I, yeah. yeah, I'll get to that in a okay. minute. <laughs> and then just the last one I want to mention is from '98, when she's 94. This is her wow. last book called "Outward Forms and Inner Springs." It's really a collection of articles rather than a continuous. Um, thing, but still, it's called a study in social and religious philosophy, and that subtitle captures something very important about her: that she has, on the one hand, an extremely socially embedded conception of of morality, but on the other hand, she also has a conception of morality and moral philosophy, which has a religious element as well. Sure. So she keeps all of those kind of pieces pieces uh, together. I, I've only read bits of all three of those of those books. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it just like add, a lot to get through. Yeah, it's right. I'm not going to have time to get to all of it. But yes, just to, you know, restate your point there, Miles, her, she has an incredible disciplinary range. Mm. And actually, at one point, she says that philosophers can help best when they weigh into another area. Yeah. Actually something a little bit like something Mary Midgley says too. And so she certainly, she certainly uh, does, does that herself. Um, and then finally, oh yes, I wanted to read just a last thing. This is, you know, all in the thing about her life. This is a comment of hers. Um, it's from, from her book, and she's kind of talking about her changing views of the analytic uh, movement, you might say, in philosophy. Um, so she's, you know, of course, she's, this is from her, her memoir, so she's writing this in the, in the 90s, but looking back to the 30s and 40s. Um, Over my lifetime, I have seen standards of criticism by which he means like philosophical criticism of different positions, get higher and higher and distinctions of meaning more and more strict. And this is surely right and proper, but this has gone along with a narrowing of the range of subjects discussed so that philosophy becomes more an in-group pursuit of philosophers than part of general intellectual life. I'm going to stop there for a second. Um, this idea of her wanting philosophy to be part of general intellectual life, that's very, that's the same as, as Murdoch, essentially. Mm -hmm. Murdoch wanted that also. She wanted philosophy not to be a self-contained professional subject. So I think that her views and Murdoch's views are basically absolutely aligned on this particular point. Um, one sign of this is that philosophy books, other than those whose authors are household names, are now seldom reviewed in the national press or in periodicals other than the philosophy journals. I do not know the answer to this. We cannot relax the effort after greater precision, but we could perhaps be more alert to wider problems of public concern. Some, of course, are aware of this. So listen to this. 
Mary Warnock, for instance, while no longer pursuing philosophy professionally, brings a trained philosopher's mind to bear on difficult questions of public ethics. And Mary Midgley sends out uncritical intrusions of scientism into areas of contemporary thought. So I just thought it was fascinating that she mentioned these two mm. in particular. And uh, as I say, this this kind of goes along with my, my idea of the quartet plus way of thinking. But she's also admiring and praising Warnock and Midgley for, you know, not having kind of this ingrown conception of philosophy, you know, that was really dominant in that period. Okay, that's that's the end because <laughs> I went on for a long time. That's okay. That, but that's the that's a kind of overview of Emmett for you know for your audience. That's fine. If if um if if listeners want to kind of delve in more, and I know you've you've recommended this to me, they should uh, probably get hold of a, a copy of Philosophers and Friends, which which was published by Macmillan in the nineties, shouldn't I? I think it, it's a great kind of overview of her life, and a, and a really interesting forward by Brian McGee, who's probably um, best known now for his um his TV work but um, was a, a a public intellectual and public figure as well. Um, was there anything surprising that you learned um, from reading the, reading the life or maybe something, obviously we've talk, you've talked a good deal about the, about the philosopher she was in, engaged with. But was there anything surprising that sort of jumped out of the, uh, jumped out of that, that book that I think is probably the place to start? I do. I agree that it's a, it is a very good place to start. McGee, you know, who was also famous in addition to what you said, Miles, for, doing collections of interviews with philosophers in yeah. the 70s. He has this famous one called Men of Ideas, which of course has Murdoch in it. Um, and he has several of those, but I thought that he, he says something in his foreword to Emmett. So he, he seemed to have gotten friendly with Emmett and there's the, the cover photo is just a fantastic thing at her 90th birthday. Mm. And it's the two of them kind of laughing together. It's just a wonderful, but he says uh, the supreme attraction of this book by Emmett is that she brings alive through the story of her personal connection to them. Some of the most interesting secondary philosophers who appeared in Britain during the half century between the 20s and the 70s. So that makes it seem like what's interesting in the book is not Emmett herself, but these other people. <laughs> yeah. But actually, what's interesting about it, you know, these other figures are interesting, but you just get a sense of how her mind works. She just like comments in a very unobtrusive way about, you know, Lindsay, and she comments about this um, American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who's uh, also German, and he was a, an important theologian during the the between the two world wars, and she was very very influenced by him. And he, you know, she devotes a fair amount of time to him. And, and it's kind of interesting because almost no philosopher. She's talking about philosophers and friends, and she's counting Niebuhr. Well, no philosopher hardly any philosophers would count Niebuhr as a philosopher. Sure. So again, it's just part of her way of, you know, her kind of broader way of, of thinking about uh, intellectual terrain out there. You know, and that is something that I was just very struck by, the way she would just like mm. bring all these figures together. But I did um, want to just go a little bit more into her connection with Murdoch. Yes, please do sort of elaborate just a, a little bit more, um, you know, maybe. This is, so 
So one, one connection is through Lindsay. So Lindsay has a book called The Two Moralities from 1940, in which he counterposes a kind of everyday morality that's not particularly demanding, but is sort of required for any human group to, to be able to function. And he contrasts that with a what he calls a morality of grace that has a kind of perfectionistic dimension. And that's the second morality. And of course, that's very similar to Murdoch because Murdoch is a moral perfectionist and he was a moral perfectionist. Mm. So, you know, he was important to Emmett because he was her main tutor. But I wondered whether there wasn't some connection to Murdoch as well. There is a political connection to Murdoch that's quite fascinating, which is that when Murdoch arrives in Oxford in 1938, there's there's a very important by-election for, you know, a, a, a slot in, in the parliament where it's, it's a Tory, uh, I don't know if they're called districts, but I'll call it district. It's like a Tory district. And they're looking for someone on the liberal side to run against the Tory. Mm. And there's a Labour Party candidate, but there's also um, there's a kind of popular front idea that the communists were part of. And of course, Murdoch at that time was a member of the Communist Party. And so they looked for a candidate who they thought would have a broader appeal and would be able to, you know, the worry was a kind of appeasement. They were worrying basically that the Tory government was appeasing Hitler. Mm. And so they were looking for an anti-appeasement popular front candidate. And Lindsay was their choice. So they approached him. He wasn't a politician at all. But they, this kind of group of people from different political parties, but all sort of on the left, approached him to run. And he did run. And then Murdoch got tremendously involved in that campaign. So it was, you know, a very important kind of political uh, in, involvement for her. So I just wonder whether, you know, since she was working for this guy, whether maybe she read, maybe she read this. She doesn't seem to mention it anywhere. We don't have, you know, all of her diaries. But anyway, it's that's it's an interesting sort of indirect link to between Emmett. Mm. Then the second thing is that, um, so I mentioned that the metaphysics book was on Murdoch's shelf, and of course, a distinctive thing about Murdoch's thought is that in contrast to virtually everyone else in mainstream British philosophy in the 50s, she likes metaphysics rather than thinking that it's like ridiculous. And so I, I can't imagine that Emmett's defense of metaphysics didn't influence her in some way. And then also the way that Emmett, I haven't read the metaphysics book and metaphysics is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but um. The way Emmett wants to uh, rescue metaphysical thinking is by seeing it as a kind of analog analogy way of thinking rather than a purely descriptive way of thinking. And of course, that's very similar to Murdoch saying that metaphor is a kind of fundamental form in which we grasp reality. Mm. So I just wonder if there wasn't some connection there. It's really very, very similar what they're saying. Murdoch in her diary also mentions the idea of importance 
importance is not something that philosophers usually talk about, but but Emmett does talk about it, both in the metaphysics book and then in a separate essay on importance. And Murdoch, you know, talks about the importance of importance. So that, that's a, a place where there, there's some influence. Then another thing is that she meant Murdoch mentions that Emmett gave her Buber's book, I and Thou. And this is in the same period. It's it's on her shelf in that period. And of course, I and Thou comes to be to play a very important role for both of them. It's um Well, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll actually leave that. I'll just say Buber is important to both Emmett and to Murdoch. And Emmett introduced Murdoch to it, but we don't know, like, did they know each other? How did she, she says that Emmett gave her the book, but in what context did she give her the book? Mm. I mean, did she just, she wouldn't have just sent it to her. You know, Murdoch was just a student. So how did that happen? I just wish we could find that out. Yeah, there must be, must've been some sort of social relationship at, something. at some point yeah. yeah maybe it was some intellectual event or something but you know this is a period when murdoch i, I mean murdoch comes back to oxford in 46 is it 47 46 or 47 and that's 47 yeah yeah but i think this was prior to that because it's when she lived in london right she, this way okay so then uh, you know of course another point of connection is the um the philosophy and religion. And as you said, Miles, uh, let me see, let me see if I have it here. Uh, yes, she says uh, on page 108 of the memoir, since then I have formed a philosophic friend, philosophical friendship with Iris Murdoch over her view of the sovereignty of the good. Mm. Now, you don't know what that means exactly. Um, they weren't in the same place. She does mention, Emmett mentions that as part of the, you know, this guy Braithwaite is one of the epiphany philosophers. Braithwaite thought Iris Murdoch was one of the most serious moralists of our time. And he was reading and rereading her novels up to his death. And we used to discuss them together. And she mentions Murdoch as a novelist several times in some of those other books that I mentioned. And so she's seeing Murdoch not just as the philosopher, but as the as a moralist, but a moralist who's the novelist. And I thought that was kind of a fascinating, you know, kind of angle on it. It you know shows some of her range that she can just you know integrate the novels and the philosophy. And of course, Braithwaite seems to have you know helped along helped that along as well. Mm. It, it feels very much to me from what you're saying that Emmett with her kind of very wide ranging interests in, in, in a variety of subjects and, and Murdoch too, in a, in, in, a, in a sense, as well as being a, a, a novelist as well, they, they seem to be quite, um, com in, in a sense, very comfortable intellectually with each other. There seems to be some overlapping of intellectual reference points as well, although there are some, some differences as well. And they both seem to be connecting to this question about um, pushing back against the fact value distinction, it seems to me. Yes, absolutely. They're, they in in rules, roles, and relations. Emmett has a very extended discussion of of fact and value. She doesn't totally like say no, no, no. There's no distinction at all. She just wants to say they're not as far apart as the kind of orthodoxy of the time would say. 
but she's in a way more interested in a connected uh, dichotomy, which is between is and ought. Mm. And so she's she engages by 1966 when that book came out. There had been a, a critique of the is ought distinction, not only by the uh, quartet group, but also John Searle wrote his kind of famous uh, article that she references. So she's actually got some other literature she's drawing on, but where, where Emmett goes with that, which is very important for her own thought, is that she's saying that, um, yes, there's a logical difference between something, saying that something is, that it exists, and saying that you ought to do something. Mm. That's like a, dis- a difference in logical form. But that often what is is a reference to a human practice or a human institution that has norms built into it. So she just uses the example of, of a mother, for example, you know, you should help your mother. That, you know, it's a fact that this person is your mother, but it's a kind of, in a way, institutional fact that has a role dimension to it, that part of your role as a child is to take care of your mother, just as part of your mother's role is to take care of you. Mm. And so she is kind of highlighting the idea that the, the, the is part, when it refers to human relationships, human practices, human institutions, that has normativity shot through it. And that's why you can get it from an ought to an is. And uh, yeah, so she, she connects that with Searle's thing. I think he doesn't expand it as well. And her, you know, deep grounding in social science just gives a richness to that discussion that's that's really, uh, you know, in a way quite different from, uh, you know, Murdoch wasn't, as it were, as interested in the fact value thing purely in itself. Foote gave much, much more attention to that. Mm. And it's interesting to think about how the institutional dimension that Emmett mentions is not really present in foot, or it's it's kind of very peripheral in foot. But but of course they agree in the important thing, which is to be critical of the fact, uh, the fact value distinction. Let me just say one more thing. Um, yeah, the, you, the intellectual reference points. I just want to elaborate that slightly. Two very important shared intellectual reference points between Murdoch and Emmett are Sartre and Buber. So I mentioned Buber already, but but it's very interesting. You know, of course, Sartre and, and Murdoch is, you know, deserves credit for bringing Sartre over into the English philosophical world. And he remains a an intellectual, you know, reference point for her throughout her entire life. But for Emmett, it's also true that she she's very engaged with Sartre's critique of of a kind of role morality. So he has this famous example of this waiter, you know, who's like playing at mm. being a waiter is the way he portrays it. It's a very complicated thing. I, I can't really go into it now, but she is very engaged with Sartre in rules, roles, and relations. And I just was struck by the, the critiques that. Murdoch and Emmett make of Sartre are not really the same critique, though they're not at odds with each other either, but they're, they go kind of in different directions, but he is a very important part of the mental universe that they both occupy as, as Buber was as well.
That's fascinating. It's almost like this kind of intellectual constellation with with all sorts of different links going out, not just to philosophers of the of, of that particular period in in Britain, but outside. Um, and also, of course, earlier philosophers and indeed later philosophers, like and Alistair McIntyre um, gets a mention in um, in Philosophers and Friends as well, sort of uh, the philosophy that kind of continues after the quartet in the uh, in, in in particular yeah. ways of look, thinking about ethics and thinking about virtue as well. So it, yeah. it seems to me that Emmett really does have a kind of a, a, a made, not just a, a, a position as somebody that connects up all sorts of other thinkers and and um, and, and theorists, but also as promoting her own particular way of um, perceiving the world philosophically. Yes, and I, you you mentioned McIntyre. She she uh, refers to him as her most able student, mm. and they did a book together, a collection. Um, I can't remember what it's called. It's from 1970, but it was a kind of fascinating thing where they brought together social scientists and philosophers reflecting on philosophical issues in social science. And McIntyre is someone who really channels that uh, that idea that somehow ethics should be connected with social science. Mm. He holds on to that. And his his book, After Virtue, you know, from 1981, which was such an important, uh, you know, just a, a kind of field changing uh, work. He does carry on that Emmett spirit of having philosophy and, and social science connected. I actually studied with McIntyre in the early 70s. I, he gave a history of ethics course that's like his short history of ethics. And I just remember being just completely enthralled by the way he would set ethics in this rich social and historical context, just in a way that I hadn't seen anyone do that before. And, uh, you know, he also reviews metaphysics as the guide to morals. He gives a review, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's very favorable in a lot of ways, but it's also critical. And it's partly critical in the, in respect of saying that Murdoch's vision does not include a kind of rich sociality mm. as part of the human condition. And that is, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's something that he, you know, has continued with. Yes. And I, and I guess that creates a contrast between Emmett's work and Murdoch's work as well. Yes. Yes, that's right. That, that's a very important difference. So e even though for Murdoch, the human encounter is in some ways kind of fundamental. It's not an encounter in society, you might say. It's in kind of a person, more like a personal relation mm. context. And she doesn't, but but I mean, in this way, Murdoch is much more like the mainstream of British philosophy of the time. I mean, people like Emmett and McIntyre, and in a way, Charles Taylor could be put in that, camp as well um mainstream philosophy didn't have a richly social notion of of ethics yeah and emmett and and mcintyre did and i think that's um something that kind of kind of worth highlighting so um, in particular for those of for those people who have, who've read the quartet and are um may well be philosophers to, to to think about how emmett kind of fits in i think you've given a very rich um 
rich discussion about that, Larry. So thank you. So I definitely for, for people who are new to, to Emmett, have a look at Philosophers and Friends if you um, if you can. You can get hold of it. I, I, I managed to a couple of weeks ago and, and to read that. Where should people start with Emmett's philosophy? Um, should they get, gather some information from the, the from her um, autobiographical writings or should it really come from uh, one of her more um, deeply philosophical works? Well, I mean, I, I do think that the, I do think the memoir is so both intellectually rich, but it just gives such a sense of her as a as a person and as an intellect that it's just a great place to start. But in terms of if you go you know, to her own work, as I mentioned, um, you know, she has this whole metaphysical strand. She's got that 1945 book and then some other books from the 80s and 90s, which and, you know, that's out of my area, so I can't say anything about that. I have the impression that rules, roles and relations, something maybe an obituary I read about her said that that was her best known work. Mm. So I don't know anything about that. I'm just reporting what I read. It is a terrific it is a terrific work. So I, you know, it's the one that I was the most interested in and I know it the best. So I, I don't have anything else that I know well enough to actually really be able to compare them. But sure. it's a good, certainly a good, uh, a good place to start. Excellent. Well, I, I think that really does give people who are interested in um, going, as you said, beyond the quartet to quartet plus, um, people that might be interested in the the history of philosophy and particularly in Oxford in the 20th century. If you've enjoyed the quartet books or maybe you've read a bit of Susan Stebbing and you want to connect up female philosophy or you want to connect up um, moral philosophy and and, and um, political philosophy, perhaps, and sociological work particularly, and um, perhaps Emmett might be um, some somebody that um, you want to be on your radar and you might want to read. And certainly, Larry, I think it, it seems as if there's um, plenty more um, work to be done. You've had, it seems like you've had just scratched the surface uh, with 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 Emmett's work. It's, that's true, and I I do want to mention that McCool and Wiseman are also very interested in uh, Emmett, and we've been having some conversations about her. And I, I do hope there'll be more kind of public attention to Emmett in in some in some way in the next. Um, I'm, 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 I'm sure there will be. I mean, the, the groundwork is there with the in parenthesis project, isn't it, to take it uh, a little bit further on and uh, and to and to embrace embrace other um, other other philosophers and other other uh, other subject areas. So it's been a real pleasure, um, Larry. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today. I'm sure you'll be you'll be back on in the future. Um, but um, from me and um, indeed from Larry, um, thanks to you all for listening.